All right, if you would, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 6 this morning, and our text is going to be verse number 3. Romans chapter 6, looking at verse number 3. Last week, uh, we began an exposition of Romans 6, this last Lord's Day. We're going to continue by looking in a verse-by-verse manner throughout this chapter. I want to consider and take for our subject this morning what's found there in verse 3. Paul writes, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. I want to consider that subject this morning, being baptized into Jesus Christ. We need to keep in mind and we need to remember that the context of Romans 6 centers on the very first two verses and the convicting questions that Paul asks regarding continuing in sin. By way of a review, remember the question was, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul is asking these very pressing and convicting questions regarding the believer and the tragedy and the travesty it would be for a believer to even desire to continue in sin due to their legal standing before God, which is our justification. So in the preceding chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has dealt with the realities of the universal depravity of man. He's also dealt with the reality that all are guilty. All come short of the glory of God. But at the same time, he acknowledges and preaches and proclaims the free salvation that is found through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fully exhibited that there is a remedy, that there is a solution to man's problem, the problem that every man has. It's universal depravity. Uh, There are none who can say, I am without sin. So we know Paul is never at once saying that you are sinless, but he is saying that there is an inseparable connection between what we once were and what we are now. In other words, there should not be a link between those two any longer. Now, Paul, as he establishes these great truths, he proceeds to prove now that what should be the connection. The connection is between our justification and our sanctification. To those he has justified, he will also sanctify. So if we legally stand before God justified, then we will be sanctified. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot be justified and then think, I don't have to be or will I be sanctified? They are inseparable truths. So Paul, in this verse, and as we move through chapter 6, commences by stating an objection. He states the objection by asking the questions, and it is this argument, this universal argument regarding salvation by grace. Paul is asking a question like this, what is the consequence of the doctrine I have been teaching? In other words, if justification is what it is, 
and justification is inseparably connected to sanctification, what are the consequences of that doctrine? Now, consequences sometimes can be viewed as always negative, but there are positive consequences to a doctrine. Justification has positive consequences. In other words, if you stand legally justified through the blood of Jesus Christ before God, the consequence is your sanctification. Your sanctification on one day will also lead to your glorification, where one day you will be glorified and you will be without the presence of sin. So Paul is asking that question. What are the consequences of our justification, especially with regard to our sanctification? Some had used Paul's teaching of justification that if it's through faith, if it's not based upon works, and if it is true that wherever sin abounds, grace has much more abounded, the question had begun to be asked by many, then why can't we continue in sin? That's what verse 3, Paul begins to give the reason why a true believer who is justified and is being sanctified cannot, not may not, cannot continue in sin. In other words, Paul's answering an objection. He's answering the objection of those who would say grace is a license to sin by saying, no, 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 there are consequences that if you are justified, you will be sanctified and you cannot continue in sin. Sinless perfection, no. But do the believer's desires change? If sanctification is truly taking place, then that means there is true justification. Some falsely teach sanctification first, then justified second. That is false. That's erroneous. That is works-based salvation. We cannot be sanctified until we are justified. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. So it is a plausible conclusion for the unregenerate mind to come to the conclusion, if sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The natural man, the unregenerate man, can see that's a plausible, reasonable outcome. It sounds good. Sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Only the natural man who's not been converted by the Spirit of God thinks that way. So if you were to sit here today and say, no, my doctrinal opinion is, is that I believe that what Paul was teaching is because when sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Paul is saying, I do have a license to continue in sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the exact opposite. Your natural mind, that sounds like a plausible solution. Sin abounds, grace is much more abound. So why not continue in sin? Because grace has me covered. Paul is dealing with that objection. Paul then repels this charge, or he turns this charge away by declaring this truth. The union that believers have with Jesus Christ, as is represented in what we often refer to and recognize as baptism, is identifying those individuals as people who are dead to sin, 
and have risen to walk with him in newness of life. Now, we won't see that this morning, but verse 4, Paul deals with the reality. He says that even so, we also should walk in newness of life. He's talking about walking in our sanctification. So Paul is completely pushing away any idea of walking and continuing to walk in sin. He says it's the exact opposite. If you're justified, you're being sanctified, and the result, the consequence positively will be that you will walk in newness of life. Not that you might walk, but that you will walk. So having established these truths, Paul, notice we won't cover this verse today in verse 11. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul is, is we're going to build to this, but Paul is taking what he says in the previous verses and he is, he's teaching them about what your mindset should be, knowing what you know now. Reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin. Now he has a reason why he says that. Because he's teaching in these previous verses before verse 11, he's very clearly saying that if you truly have been justified and you truly are being sanctified, you are not just pretending to be dead to sin, you actually are. It's your actual state. Again, sinless perfection, no. Paul's got something much deeper in Romans 6 than oftentimes we, we don't spend enough time on the depths of of the riches and the beauty of Romans 6. Beautiful doctrines, justification, sanctification. Very challenging, convicting, practical applications. If you say you have no sin, you make God a liar, John says. Paul is never saying you don't have sin. Paul is not saying you're not going to struggle with sin. But what Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, consider yourselves dead to it because that's what being baptized into Jesus Christ actually means. You're dead to sin. Now Paul addresses the responsibility of being convinced. Paul is, is convincing the, the readers that this is not just a manner of life that this is, but rather this is their actual standing. Many times we just simply put, okay, what do I do now? How do I apply this? And application is extremely important. But don't forget that justification is an actual change. Sanctification is an actual change, not a potential possible change. Just like salvation is not made possible through the cross of Christ, your salvation was actually effectually accomplished. It didn't make it possible. So your justification doesn't make your sanctification possible. It's inseparably connected. Which means if you're justified, you are being sanctified. And if you're being sanctified, your actual state is you are dead to sin. Again, not just in a practical, I'm never sinning again, but even in a legal sense. That's why Paul uses the example of the sinless one, Jesus Christ, to illustrate what being dead to sin actually means. 
So we are going to go methodically slow, intentionally slow, because I want us and I want myself to completely absorb and to understand through the Spirit this great doctrines that are being taught in Romans 6. He says, Paul, as he proceeds to now give the full answer of what Romans 6, Paul is answering those two questions about continuing in sin. He shows us, again, in a broader way, the full answer to that objection. That sanctification, the sanctification of believers, rests on the exact same foundation in which their justification rests upon. My sanctification rests upon the same foundation as my justification. It doesn't come from a different spring and it doesn't come from a different source. It springs from my union, your union, with Christ Jesus. Your union with Christ is not a mystical, hypothetical, illustrative. It is an actual union. You're united with Christ. You're not just a part of the body by your doing good. You are actually unified into the body of Christ. It's not, it's been described, someone has said that your sanctification and your ju justification are perfectly harmonious. That sounds like a good definition, but it's actually deeper than that. It's inseparable. Harmony is good. Harmony in music is fantastic. When it's not, when there isn't good harmony, it's horrible, right? But you can, harmony is not as strong as inseparable. If I teach, well, yes, justification and sanctification, they work alongside of each other and they're kind of playing off each other. They're harmonious. No, they're, they're the very same foundation. I cannot and will not have one without the other. This is where many of our, many of where the Arminian goes desperately wrong that and on many many fronts but this is one of those areas where they desperately go wrong this idea that one can can exist without the other that's all based upon what man chooses or chooses not to do now remember to kind of keep the context going here which is always important the conclusion of chapter number five what had paul declared in verse 20 he says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So the questions that are being asked in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, they're not standalone new questions. He finished chapter 5 dealing with this. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you just to kind of take a mental note and just kind of put it somewhere in your head, in your mind about the word reign or reigned. Because that word is key to understanding how Paul is addressing the problem of sin. Reigning. To rule. 
to be enthroned. To be enthroned means to set it as the heart of your affections. He said, notice that sin reigned. It reigned unto death. However, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. You see the different untos. Unto death, unto eternal life. Well, how is the eternal life given? By Jesus Christ our Lord. By what means? His death. Death to sin came through the death of Christ. Being dead to sin is because Christ died unto sin. Again, look what we'll see next week. He says in verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So Jesus Christ is identified that sin had reigned unto death. That's what Paul's declaring at the end of chapter 5. It reigned until or unto the death of Jesus Christ, who is the surety of his people. But then interestingly, look down at Romans 6 and look at verse 10. For in that he died, that's Christ, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now you might just blow right through that and you might not stop and really ponder some of the challenges you have thinking through that humanly speaking. <laughs> because you begin looking and you say, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. Not that he died because of his sin. He died in the place of those who do sin. That's you, that's me. He died once unto sin. So sin reigned, but as in his death, sin no longer reigns, it is terminated. Now again, if we are truly in the body of Christ, and the Bible teaches that we are actually in union with him, if sin was terminated, sin was put to death by the death of of Jesus Christ on the cross, sin is terminated in you and I. And those are called, be, that is called being dead to sin. Think about what Paul says in Romans 8. There is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no more condemnation? Because sin has been terminated. Sin is the problem. So the effect then is that Jesus Christ's death is the termination or the killing of the reign of sin that Paul so eloquently talked about at the end of chapter 5. Sin reigned unto death. Jesus Christ in his death terminated the reign of sin. Now you understand what Jesus terminated on his death upon the cross and his resurrection. He terminated death. He terminated hell. He terminated Satan. 
Folks, I can't say it clearly enough. Satan is a defeated foe. And yet he still has such a deep impact in our lives. Christ terminated him. He paid for sin once, which means sin has already been atoned for. It's already received its only payment. That's why it is the pinnacle of foolishness to think that you could offer any sort of righteousness to terminate something that's already dead. When something is dead, you don't have to kill it a second time. Sin's already been terminated by Christ's death. Now, if you don't get all that from Romans 6, Romans 6 just sounds like a manual of self-help. And it just sounds like a 10-step program of how to mortify the flesh. Now, again, are we to take steps to mortify what we put before our eyes and to mortify our sin? Absolutely we are, but don't get that confused with your standing. You're standing in Christ because of your justification. Sanctification springs from the very same source, the very same fountain, which means that legally you are dead to sin. But Jesus, actually his death did something even beyond that. At the very same time that the reign of sin is killed, something else began the reign of grace. Again, look at what Paul says at the end of chapter 5. Again, these truths all go together. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. Right? God's saving grace, right? We understand that when we look at the law, the law itself only increased how guilty we are. Paul described the law as a schoolmaster to bring us to the understanding that we needed a Savior. But as death, sin is terminated, grace reigns. Remember I told you, put that word reign in your mind. How did the reign of grace take place? Sin terminated through death. Grace reigns through righteousness everlasting, eternal righteousness. <laughs> not temporary righteousness, not righteousness for today, eternal righteousness. How? By Jesus Christ our Lord. So instead of being under the reign of sin, Believers are now under the reign of grace. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant in Hebrews 12.28 when it says about believers, they serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The reason we are serving, the reason you have a desire to serve, is because grace through the righteousness of Christ is now reigning in you. That's why when Paul gets to the conclusion of Romans 6, when he reminds him for the wages of sin is death, 
See, that, that's a glorious verse, but it's a more glorious verse when you see the whole context of Romans 6. That's why expositional preaching is so important, folks. That's why we don't, we don't take our subjects from just something. We look at the scripture and say, what, what's God trying to teach us here? Already, three verses in, the wages of sin is death, verse 23, now means more to you as a believer than it probably ever did before. Now, I say this, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but we throw that out there as an evangelistic verse, and I'm saying there's some truth to that. But do you realize the natural mind doesn't even comprehend what that means? If you just look at a person and you say, do you know what it says in Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? Do you think the natural man even has a concept of what that means? Not apart from the Holy Spirit teaching them and convincing them because they're going to know a lot. They're going to have a lot of questions. Sin, wages, what does that mean? Sin, you I mean there's an acknowledgement of this. There's something more here than just a mental assent to accept the truth. It's actually Paul reminding them of their standing in Christ is what Romans 6.23 is primarily about. He's reminding them what they once were. The wages of your sin was death. Sin reigned unto death, but now grace reigns through the righteousness of Christ our Lord. That makes every believer humble because they say, this is what Christ has done for me. Where sin reigned, now grace much more abounds. Not a license to sin, but rather a cause for praise. Now Paul, of course, uses the union that the believer truly has with Christ. And part of their absolute security and their assurance is found in their union with Christ. But again, this does not mean that Paul is not warning about the motives. In other words, these truths are to motivate us to abstain from sin. Knowing the truths we've talked about this morning already ought to be a powerful motivator to change your conduct. You and I will have missed it if we say amen here in about five minutes and we say that was a great lesson on understanding about how sin reigned and how grace reigns. But if we do not, if it does not change our conduct, it has not reached where it was supposed to reach. You realize every sermon, every Bible lesson that is taught is supposed to reach and actually change. It's not just given so that we might rejoice in a truth. It's actually supposed to change the way we live and change our conduct. The consideration then is that, and we're going to deal with this more next week, is they, as believers also died with Christ and are now risen with Him to walk in the newness of life. Now, why can we walk in the newness of life? Because it is inseparably connected with the certainty that we just read about. But Paul actually builds on this certainty. Look at verses 5 and 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. 
So not only does he talk about walking in newness of life, but he also talks about being in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. When was the old man put to death? When Jesus Christ died upon the cross. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now what this serves as is the strongest motivation as to the love of God. I wouldn't do this to us this morning, but if I was to go around this room and I was to say, why do you love God? I would suggest there would probably be various answers. Some might say I love God because He provides for us, and that's wonderful. He meets our needs. That's tremendous. But our greatest love for God and the greatest spring for our obedience, which, which moves us to actually walk in newness of life, understanding that we did not love Him first, but that He first loved us. Our love for Christ ought to be motivated by through the death of Christ and our death with Him serves as the most powerful motive as to why we ought to live dead to sin because of what we now know. I love what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where Paul says this, the love of Christ constraineth us. It actually has the, the tone of apprehending to hold. Because we thus judge, we discern it properly. That if one died for all, he's referencing Christ. The love of Christ is motivated by this truth. If he, one, died for all, then we're all dead. That means every man, every woman, every boy, every girl had the same problem. Sin. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. See, my, mot my greatest motivation to obey God and to live for him is because of what he did for my sin. And that through his death, now I have life. Where sin abounded in my heart, where sin reigned in me, now the righteousness of Christ is to reign in me. And if I'm truly justified, this is not a might happen. This is a sanctifying process. But it is not for us just to sit and say, okay, God, I'm justified, sanctify me. No, the Bible teaches that we are also to press towards living that way. See, we can make an error and say, okay, this is all of God, so I don't have to do anything. It's the same error you make if you believe evangelism because of the doctrine of election means you don't have to preach the gospel or share the gospel. You'd be wrong. Because it's the very means in which God the Father, through the Spirit, draws people to Christ is through the preaching of the Word. So we're not free to just live any way we want. We are to live with the love of Christ in view.
So Paul teaches us here that the solid ground and the security in which believers shall stand does not give us a license to live in sin. It's in direct contrast to our actual state, how we stand. I want to stop there because I don't want to get into this next section because this is, this is going to add to it. I said we're going to go methodically slow. But remember this, Paul is preaching and teaching us that believers, the reason we can be dead to sin and the reason we are dead to sin is because we actually died with Christ. We're dead to sin. Christians not only died with Christ, but we also will be raised in His likeness. That's why the resurrection is a glorious truth. Many reasons why. But to be resurrected, to know that there is a day, a resurrection day that's coming. And yet we can take heart and take hope this morning in realizing that what the Apostle Paul teaches us here is still just as true as it was for those at Rome as it is for us. We have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And we'll expound on that a little bit more next week. Well, let's take our hymn book and we'll finish with a hymn, a familiar hymn.